98.1 W, oh my gosh, 91.3 WVKR, Independent Radio, Poughkeepsie, New York. You are tuned into Local Motion. Thank you to Frank for the last two hours of Vinyl Triumph, where you can hear some of the coolest music out there in any genre you can possibly think of. Thank you to Frank. And by the way, he'll be covering for me next week because I will not be here. So uh, and a heads up, thank you to Frank for always stepping in and doing what's needed here at the airways of WVKR. If this is your first time tuning into the show, this show is all about music of the Hudson Valley. Musicians that live here, those coming to perform in our area venues, as well as those coming to record in our world-class area recording studios. 99.9% of my shows are interview-based. Oh, by the way, show number 194 for me on these airwaves, and it will be podcast number 12. So if you miss part of this, you can always check it out on Spotify, Apple Music, all that good stuff. And uh, in the meantime, let me open up and say that today I'm so thrilled, really thrilled to have the renowned clarinetist, composer, um, saxophonist, arranger, educator, Mr. Don Byron in the house. Don, we're going to do a quick live sound check. Say hello to the folks. Hello to the folks. All right. You're going to have to move that mic a little bit closer, and then we're going to be hearing a lot more of you. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Let me just say and give a brief introduction to the listeners out there of Local Motion. Rome Prize recipient, Pulitzer Prize finalist, 2007 Guggenheim Fellow and Grammy nominee, Don Byron is a world-renowned clarinetist, composer, saxophonist, educator, and arranger. Playing musical genres ranging from classical to salsa to hip-hop, funk, rhythm and blues, klezmer and jazz. Don was named Jazz Artist of the Year by Downbeat Magazine in 1992. He's collaborated with countless musicians, including the Duke Ellington Orchestra, Bill Frizzell, Mark Rebo, Angelique Kijo, Carol King, Bobby, Bobby Previtt, just to name a few. We're going to be lucky enough to be having him perform in our area at the Falcon in Marlboro on Thursday, July 11th. And with that, again, a formal welcome to Local Motion on 91. Sir, if you would tell us what we're going to listen to. I'd like to get the listeners familiar with your music. Tell us what track we're listening to. Um, It's from a a duo CD I made with a Cuban pianist named Arwan Ortiz. And uh, it's a piece of music I wrote for a film score. I I, um, just uh, last year, I did some music for a documentary, like a American Masters PBS documentary on the playwright Lorraine Hansberry. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is um, something I wrote called Delphian Nuptials. Beautiful. Let's take a listen to it right here on 91.3 WVKR, Independent Radio, Poughkeepsie. <laughs> Thank you. 
WVKR, Independent Radio, Poughkeepsie, New York. What a great way to start off the show here today. It's 4.08. I'm your host, Rita Ryan, here with Local Motion. I'll be here till 6 o'clock with you. And I am in studio today with the world-renowned clarinetist, Mr. Don Byron. Thank you again for being here. Beautiful way to start off the show. Thanks for bringing your music in, too. I always let the artists pick out their own music. It's just so much easier and... uh, kind of highlights uh, what you want us to play. So so um, you're a New Yorker, grew up in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And music, it seems like from what I did as far as the homework, um, your, your parents were musically inclined, your mom being a, a pianist and your dad being a bassist. Yeah, they, they both played a little bit, but my dad was really a professional musician. Like on the weekends, he worked in bands. Uh-huh. Did you go see him? Did you hang out with him? Sometimes I did, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, most of the time I was a kid, I was just trying to study, you know, classical clarinet, so I wasn't really looking at what he was doing like it was something that I wanted to do. But, you know, it was interesting, and they had a great clarinet player. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable guy that, that, that um, you know, was one of, the, one of the strongest clarinet solos that I ever heard i mean you know there's there's other things besides jazz and classical music with the clarinet there's colombian music clarinet very strong brazilian music very strong um but like english speaking like trinidadian type of music there were a few very good clarinet solos so i kind of grew up around some ethnic clarinet what age did you start picking up that instrument uh, I, well i mean i'm probably started I was seven or eight or something and why clarinet well really why clarinet because my my uncle had played clarinet and you know West Indian kids you had to take an instrument you know you had to take an instrument you had to do something after school you know it was just how things went um I had asthma and you know the doctor either said I could play a wind instrument or I could swim and Black people can't swim, so I I played the clarinet. There you go, there you go. And you you had you had teachers, of course. You were te- you were taught. You had a lessons. You went. You did all of that. At age seven, though, that's early, right? Doesn't most kids start in like middle school or something? Well, I, you know, the, the instrument was around. It was more like a medical issue than it was like you know. I I had think by the time I picked up clarinet, I had taken a little recorder lessons and things like that. You know, like little kid kinds of things but you know my uncle went far enough he had a real wooden instrument you know it was it wasn't like playing like a plastic clarinet that has no sound so I really got into the sound mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that was before the days of internet where you can look up a lot of stuff where you actually had to like listen for the music right so because nowadays people like kids are taking up instruments they're looking online they're looking instructional they're listening to the music but back then we were buying vinyl and cassettes and eight tracks and being exposed to music that way I'm gathering yeah. I mean yeah. kids today you know they don't really read that, that much you know like they have a whole different way of thinking about music that's more 
tied to electronics and being able to cut and paste things and put them where you want them. You don't have to know any music for that. Right. But you have to have a sense of taste. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And technology, know-how. So in high school, did you play throughout high school? Did you play in a band in school? Well, I mean, I played in a band in elementary school. You know, back then they had a band, and in junior high school, it was a band. But you know, in New York, you had the in at the junior high school level, you had borough wide band on Saturdays. You could go and play with the best kids from your borough, and each of the five boroughs had its borough wide. And then at the high school level, you could be in citywide band or statewide band. And and then I went to a specialized high school, the High School of Music and Art. Is that LaGuardia? Yeah, that's LaGuardia. I mean, at this point, it's it's it and another school have kind of merged. But I went to the High School of Music and Art, which was up by City College. And there were a lot of, a lot of the people that I went to school with or professional, you know, that's where, I don't know, Bela Fleck, was one of my classmates or really um uh let's see uh, uh well marcus miller um wow. i mean we just had a lot of musicians there was a guy danny drugman who's in the new york philharmonic there's you know like so there were a lot of kids that were interested in playing like my friend brian carrot was a classmate of mine reggie washington and Kenny Washington, Reggie Washington, who played with Steve Coleman, Kenny Washington, who plays with, um, he plays very kind of conservative jazz. But but his brother was like a funk bass player turned cello player. So there were, you know, there were, there was a lot of New York amongst kids music making. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, sounds cool. Um, I had no idea Bela Fleck was from New York City. He's from the Upper West Side, yeah. Wow, I did not know that. So you taught me some. Um, wow, yeah, very cool. Um, yeah, it's really cool that New York City has those specialized high schools. I wish they had a little bit more of that up here, but I guess the population doesn't call for it. But after high school, you went to New England Conservatory, and you hit a Boston. Tell me about your time there. Well, I had, I had been to a couple of schools around New York, too. Um, I went. I went to to uh, New England because one of my teachers, this guy Joe Allard, mm-hmm. taught there. And I needed to put some distance between me and New York. Um, I had had a hard time trying to learn clarinet in New York. And in those days, you couldn't be like a young black kid trying to learn clarinet. they tell you you're a saxophone player, you're a jazz musician, and use that as an excuse not to teach you anything. So wow. I finally, when I really hooked up with Joe Allard, and he would teach me anything I wanted to know. I figured it was a good idea to go to Boston, you know, and just pursue all the things that I'd been interested in. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when I got to New England, I was playing chamber music. Then the Klezmer Conservatory Band started. Love that. Tell um, me about that. Klezmer. Well, I don't want to get into no? that. No? All right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like I, I was doing a lot of different things different kinds of jazz and different kinds of aesthetics. Um, and um, like I knew all the Wynton Marsalis guys, Branford, Donald Harrison, Greg Osby. I knew all of those guys. I knew people like Sam Bennett that are more like 
considered downtown kind of people. I knew guys that just played straight up classical flute, classic, you know, and we and we did stuff together. And so that that when I came here, the range of things that I do, I had been working on all of them. Exposed to a lot up there. Yeah. Uh, no, really working on them and sometimes working at them around around Boston. I played lots of Latin Latin music, Latin jazz, played piano, wrote arrangements, did all kinds of, of things in that idiom. And then different kinds of ethnic music besides the Klezmer stuff, Romanian, Bulgarian, things like that. Um, played very avant-garde jazz, played very straight-ahead kind of jazz, you know, just with, with different sets of people. And I wasn't well-known at the time. Nobody, you know, nobody knew what I, whatever else I was doing, so I just worked at a lot of different things. It's really cool that you... Most people go in, especially in college, go into doing like one thing and focusing on, okay, I'm playing classical or I'm playing jazz. And you seem to kind of branch out like big time. Well, the classical thing wasn't really happening. I mean, you couldn't you could be like a normal black person and say, show some interest in classical music and then have anything to do with jazz. You had to like show everybody you, you had to hide that you were into other things or else you wouldn't be taken seriously in this thing that you were trying to be in. And it was that kind of thinking that I had to, made me want to leave New York. Because mm -hmm. I, did, I didn't, I, re, I really felt like all these different idioms they had, you know, if you hung out with people that played Latin music and they only played Latin music and they only talked about Latin music, you know, like, like, like I just wasn't that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I was more a kind of person that wanted versatility in my life. I wanted to understand a few different things from the inside out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of tailored an education where, for myself where I was just working on a lot of different things. And it, for me, it was a point of survival. I mean, you know, even if I had been accepted into the classical world, there's not that much work mm -hmm. and there's not that many things to do mm -hmm. and there were more things to do and not that many people were playing some of the other things who had real training on the instrument mm -hmm. so I was trying to bring a kind of stronger way of playing physically playing clarinet and bring that to jazz clarinet playing or klezmer you know places where you didn't really see um, strong clarinet the way that I had been taught. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. After that education, back to New York City for you? Yeah, you know, I mean, the, it would have been, you know, just because of family I would have come back, but I really, um, I really felt that I could contribute. So, so I came back here, you know, I was playing a bunch of baritone and played in Big bands, the Ellington band, Mario Bowser, How cool is things that? like that. Hey, when did the saxophone came into play for you? Well, I think when you know, when, even when I was in New York as a kid, I always loved 
the baritone saxophone, and I used to go to see, like the Machito Orchestra, I would go, and there was a guy, Leslie Johannikins, who was the baritone player. His, his name was John Jenkins, but that's what he called himself. And, and we would talk about, you know, how to play baritone in a big band, and he was real encouraging and instructive. And before I left uh, New York to go to Boston, I I got myself a baritone. There you go. I always like I always liked its function in Machito's music or Eddie Palmieri's music. Wherever wherever it is, it's kind of leading from the bottom. Uh huh. Yeah. So your time at NEC in Boston was it focused on performance or also did you also take composing? What did you? Well, I studied with, you know, one of the great composers, a guy named George Russell. And, um, you know, he was uh, a great theoretician of uh, not just of jazz, but of theory. Uh, he really helped me to understand a lot of the things that I, that I understood innately from Stravinsky, from kind of bitonal harmony but didn't really have a great explanation from the way that harmony was taught on the classical side. The way that harmony is taught on the classical side is just not, doesn't really t tell you anything about how music is written, how to think about it. You just, you, you write the major scale and you write Roman numerals under it and that's supposed to mean something. But what George figured out was how to measure harmony, how to measure the distance between things. Mm -hmm. So that if you were de defining more than one key center, you had a, a theoretical basis for it. And um, so I could look at Stravinsky or Debussy or whatever in a more organized kind of way. There were a lot of different ways of theoretically thinking about music that were being tossed around in theory circles at a place like New England. There's a guy, Schenker, who analyzed things in a certain kind of way. There was a guy, Schillinger. He had a different kind of approach. Uh, there was Arnold Schoenberg himself, who had a certain kind of way of looking at harmony, but the way that George Russell laid it out it wasn't just jazz applicable applicable it was it was really about organizing tonality in a way that was very concrete so mm -hmm. it was very helpful to me mm -hmm. right it clicked with you well yeah. yeah 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 something like that yeah so had you started composing prior to going to NEC was it like something that well, was like I mean I you know I was writing writing a chart a week you know like I yeah. you know I had like these these latin you know when I was in, uh, when, just as I was about to leave for Boston, a whole, you know, my neighborhood changed from like a very mixed neighborhood to like all the white people moved and they were replaced by different ethnic groups that had wanted music. And people knew that I wanted, mu that, that I knew how to read music. And so like these Dominican guys would come by and they'd say, hey man, you know, can, can, you, can you write out this merengue for me? <laughs> And and that was really the start of me kind of getting, you know, theoretically involved in 
like Latin and Caribbean music, the music that I'd grown up with, but I was really getting more like, okay, well, this chord leads to this chord, to that chord, like getting more knowledgeable about that. So by the time I got to New England, I was very involved in in, in that. Mm-hmm. And maybe more interested in kind of Latin music more than jazz in terms of myself as a composer. And even later, my group, Six Musicians, kind of, I went back to that, you mm-hmm. know, Caribbean rhythms and then the things that I had learned as, you know, studying composition. Right, right, right. I love the fact that you are so wrapped up into music. It's very rare for me to speak to someone that has such a discography of so many genres of music and it just is most people are are one way or the other and and you're just kind of all over the place so after after nec and and moving back to new york guessing um obviously your doors opened and you started recording and and performing with a whole bunch of people i mean the people that you recorded with alone i we could sit here and list for the next half hour um Tell me how you got yourself out there. Like you just started playing in clubs. How did you get out there after college? I just came back here and, you know, maybe I'd play at a jam session, play in a rehearsal. I wasn't here long before I ended up in the Ellington Band, and that was kind of the turning point for me. How'd they find you? um, Somebody I knew was already in there, and they needed a baritone player, and you know, I mean, you know, I was playing unusual amounts of clarinet, and the that baritone chair in particular has, you know, Harry Carney actually played unusual amounts of clarinet himself, and oftentimes they can't find somebody who can play the baritone and play those clarinet parts and bass clarinet parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, at the time, I never really put any flute together, but I could play clarinet, bass clarinet, and, and baritone pretty good. And I ended up playing a couple years with, with the Ellington Band. Wow. Um, and then, you know, I got more into playing small group things where it's more about being a soloist. You know, there's guys that only play in big bands. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of guys, trumpet players especially. There's that big band trumpet player guy you know you'd never see them on a small group gig but you know they're on every big band gig so i i I didn't want to be that i i knew i knew that i didn't want to be the the baritone player i wanted to play clarinet Mm -hmm. so so i just you know after a while i just do you remember your first recording session my first recording sessions were probably um in boston actually Uh uh-huh um with the with some of the Latin bands, finally they recorded some stuff, and then with the Klezmer Conservatory band, and then with, you know, whatever other kinds of things that I, I worked on while I was there. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Your knowledge of music is obtained nowadays through a lot of reading online. I mean, you seem to be basically a walking encyclopedia musicologist as far as your history and knowledge of so many very types of music. How how do you get all that? Just over time, over playing it, over reading more? Well, it's not really passive. You know, um, like I do a lot of, you know, if I say I know Mickey, if, if, 
Certain guys come here and they say they know Mickey Cash music. They're saying they've listened to it. Like, I got it on paper. Like, I could put notation in front of musicians and re reproduce that effect. That's different than saying that you know about something. Right, right. And I'm, you know, I've, I've always been quick at knowing, getting to know things. You know, I had pretty quick ears, and that's how I got into Latin music. I was just had records and I, I'd sit at the piano and I'd figure out, you know, what was being played. So I, you know, even before I had come to New England and kind of put all this educational stuff on it, I, I did have that ability to, you know, hear something and transcribe it. And be able to do that. So, yeah, that's a gift. I mean, you're obviously a gifted person. So not just talented, but you got that special ear for stuff. It's pretty cool. Um, by the way, if people are just tuning in, it's 429. It's Wednesday. He's sitting here with Don Byron today on Local Motion. Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, you recorded with Alan Toussaint. Oh, yeah. Tell me about your time with him, if you would. Well, I wore a jacket to that. <laughs> Is that not normal for no, you? No, that's not normal shit. <laughs> um, okay. No, I... um. I just, you know, I had so much respect for, for the man. And um, I just tried to play my ass off while I was around him. And, and then, you know, I did some gigs with him, and he was very nice to me. You know, like he, he died a couple of years ago, yes. like on a stage practically. In in you Madrid. know, like, like, yep. like after a gig or something like that. Yep. But, I mean, you know, every once in a while, he called me and I the last time I played with him it was in Curacao or someplace like that. And, you know, like he'd just get a gig and he'd want to do that particular repertoire. Uh, and then a couple of the times I played with his normal band. That was really fun. Like, damn, that was really fun. Just his normal band and we were playing, working on a coal mine, <laughs> down, down. You know, I mean... We were really. I was like, "Damn, am I really playing this? Right? Am I really playing this?" I had to pitch yourself. Oh a man, bit. <laughs> which uh, and it's some of that Glenn Campbell stuff he wrote, like, like, like you know, like he'd take a bow and he'd go off stage, and I'd have to play like Wichita Lineman or something like. Oh, it's bad. I loved that. I loved it. Oh. I mean, like that. I I think I loved doing his band more than I loved the thing that he put together, which was really, you know, trying to make a jazz record. And it was it's a nice record. It's a beautiful record. I mean, I think he he was such a knowledgeable guy. It was ridiculous, you know, and I you know, because people look at me and they think I'm nerdy. He sits down at the piano and he starts playing and then he's he's I I remember one day at the sound check he starts he sung that whole rap from the Music Man. There's trouble in River City, and is your kid reading Captain Willie? And he knew all the words, all the chords, you know. And he was like that with everything. Like he'd sit down there, some Chopin, no problem, all by memory. You know, he was a reader, he was scholarly, and he brought a lot of different things together in his work and his arranging. There's a lot of different elements together. He's not like the Marsalis guys, like just trying to be like one thing. He was a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. He was an interesting dude. He was very political. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of discussions about politics. And, you know, he was just like an old, 
world gentleman type of guy. He always wore like a nice suit, and then he'd have these little sandals on with socks on. He was so cute. I thought he was so cute. I've never heard him described as I just, cute before. I, just, I, like I thought he was so cute. I just did, you know, and I and I adored him. You know, there's certain certain guys that I've worked with, Mario Bowser. I just adored him. Just mm-hmm. as a musician, you just adore what they've done, what they've accomplished, how they wear it, how they how how it how it how it emits from them. Mm-hmm. And he was just, you know, he wasn't he wasn't about being a purist about anything. He wrote he wrote voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir. I mean, you know, like you know, this guy, he he pulled a lot of compositional savvy together. You know, Dr. John was a good player, but to, and this guy, he had a, a compositional savvy to what he did, and that's what made him a great producer. Mm-hmm. It was all the stuff that he checked out and the way that he digested it. That's what he, he brought as a producer. And, you, you know, if, if you just just a casual listen to some of the things that he produced even the corniest thing there's something to it destruction is you know you 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 get that maybe not just from being an r&b guy but knowing how a viennese waltz is shaped you know like that's him you know and but there's a bridge to that there's a structure to that there's everything to that even the things that don't seem like much when you look at them he, he, you know, he's very inspiring. And I'm, I'm just glad he's one of those guys. I'm just glad I got to know. That's really cool. That's really. Who else have you worn a jacket for? Ooh, recently. <laughs> Anytime. I, well, I had to wear a jacket in the Ellington band. That's for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, we, yeah, you had to have a, you had to have a tux. It was funny. Like just before I got that gig, there was this place in Boston. It, that sold like used tuxedos and everybody in the Klezmer band, we would go there and get, get stuff. I said, I'm going to get a new thing. I don't know why I'd get it. And then, and then, and then like I bought it and then a few weeks later I needed it. But that was, that was, you know, there were at least four or five guys who had actually played with Duke mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. band. Yeah. And then you just hear like all these crazy stories about people's oddities or rivalries or who wanted to kill who or you know i was just it was very rich mm-hmm. being around the older guys sure sure especially being that young and just coming out of college so yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was very interesting because uh when you're inside the ellington thing you don't really think so conservatively as as some of the people that like ellington's music are very conservative but when you're in the thing and you see how, how it's actually written and constructed, and also the the old Ellington guys, they understood that their thing was aesthetically a cut above. They could talk about it. It wasn't like they were just talents mm-hmm. that he stuck in there. They understood mm-hmm. what it was that they were doing. Yep. And so, you know, you're talking to, sextagenarian to octogenarian black men that really have a sense of artistic 
self and 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 a sense of artistic privilege that you don't often see from people of that age group the just the guys that had been in it had been in it for a while one guy was in it 30 40 years wow. it's 1960 had been in it since wow. uh you know and and you just it's just wild it yeah. was just, and you know like it I wish I had written down some of the things that people had said to me because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them were just, they set me on the right path. They, you know, they said, ah, you know, we used to see Monk, Monk all the time. He's all, all, all that stuff he played, it all came from Duke. He, uh, he'd sit on the side, he'd look at, look at Duke and, you know, you know, like they, so they knew that Monk huh? was, they knew that Monk, what Monk was going to do before he did it because they knew him as, somebody that was absorbing Ellington's stuff, which brings me to that record, which um, Bug Music was really um, about two bands that were really Ellington watchers. Mm-hmm. You know, and there, there were a lot of people in, in, in the, the, even in the early times of the Duke Ellington Orchestra who were watching what they were doing. People were watching like, man, you know, these guys, they they're doing all this crazy stuff. Nobody's done that before. So they'd be trying to reproduce some of those effects in their music. And those two bands, the Raymond Scott band and the John Kirby band, were two small group bands that were really super Ellington-inspired mm-hmm. and um, mm. and said that. And then, you know, they had... They, had, uh, they, bo- they both had a, a very different way of aesthetically approaching being the children of Duke Ellington. They had they have different ways of going about it and and in some ways very similar. Mhm. Very cool. Wow. Uh let's listen to some more music cuz I think that preempts us right up perfectly. What are we tuning tuning into? I don't know. What what did I say? Track 2 of I think oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that that is um that's called uh when I've sung my last song. Beautiful. All right, let's listen to it and then we'll talk about it. And you are tuned in to a Local Motion 91.3 WVKR, Don Byron in the house. There's so much born, born burden, had my, had my last care. Sorrow and last day, my last song here. You'll find me singing over there. service spoken.
91.3 WVKR Independent Radio, Poughkeepsie, New York. Please tell us, Don Byron, what that was. Uh, that was a song uh, called uh, When I've Sung My Last Song by Thomas Dorsey. Mm. Wonderful. Beautiful. Thank you. And that's off of this release? Yeah, it's called uh, Love, Peace, and Soul, and it's music of Thomas Dorsey and Sister Rosetta Tharp. And I love the cover. I love the cover. It's one of the reasons I don't do downloads. I just love seeing all this stuff. You wrote a nice little story on there and released back in 2012. Again, we are talking with Don Byron, who is a renowned clarinetist, saxophonist, composer, I think historian is safe to say at this time, and um, film. You got into film, Um uh, silent film. What was that like to write for silent film? Well, that, that, that happens a lot, actually. It does? Um, yeah. Um, I, I was approached to write something by the Museum of the Moving Image, which is in Astoria near the old film studios. And um, I picked a, a kind of silent African-American, you know, like not Oscar Me show, but one of the other um, directors of that ilk. Uh, a film called Scar of Shame, and I used, I wrote a whole bunch of music, and some of it appears on some of my records. Mm-hmm. Some of it, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. You've written quite a bit of film music, right? I've written for a bunch of PBS things on various things. Joseph Papp and the Shakespeare Festival, this last one, Lorraine Hansberry. Um, there's... An, another documentary about the song Strange Fruit that I scored several years ago. There's probably a half a dozen feature-length things that I've scored, and then shorter things. Uh, I did a score for the Roosevelt Presidential Library mm-hmm. on the Tuskegee Airmen. Really? Um, uh-huh. I don't know how often they play it, but you can see it online. And so, so I've done a whole bunch of things, uh, um, usually on very kind of left-wing subjects. You know, the mm-hmm. Republicans don't get me to do their documentaries. It's always... Gotcha. You won't be at the at the memorial tomorrow in Washington, D.C. by any chance? Uh, no. <laughs> don't blame you. Um, another Hudson Valley person that we are so lucky to have here, because the world knows him as one of the most premier drummers, Mr. Jack DeJeanette. You've worked with him. Yeah. Tell me about your relationship and working with him. Well, I, I, you know, I, I always admired him, and I always admired um, just, first of all, just his raw musicianship and then this kind of magical weirdo kind of thing that he could get into just as easily as he could sound perfect playing something um i always loved that about him and i used him first on one of my records uh romance with the unseen i had bill frizzell in fact they had never met oh wow. you know i introduced the two of them and and then um uh later on ivy divey which was you know I think it. I should have. I that, I left that in the car, but it's. I think it's an amazing record. It is an amazing record. I listened to a few tracks of it when I was um, doing my homework for you. Whew, loved it. When did that come out? Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, 
check it out. Ivy Divey, I-V-E-Y-D-I-V-E-Y. Check that out, listeners, like on YouTube. It's all over the place and really worth checking into. It's with Jack DeJanette as well as Mr. Don Byron, who we're here talking with right now. Um, you, you and Jack ever just to hang out? Because I know we're both all living here in the area. Well, you know, Jack is a, is a friend. Jack and Lydia are friends and, you know, I think that my relationship with him musically and personally are, are quite separate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we've we've done a bunch of stuff over the years. He had a, a few different of his um, ensembles I've, I've been in. He, um, he plays a mean piano, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He made a nice piano trio record where he's the piano player. It's mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah, yeah. I saw that's him. real musicianship, you know. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, another guy I played with Ralph Peterson. He believed in that, you know, like you should be able to like make real lines like people that don't play drums make. You should you should know how that goes, even if you're not doing it, and it then it comes out in the way that you play behind people. If you have that knowledge, it's different than you you're just a drummer and you. you you make time and it feels good. You know, at any point, Jack could sing or play just something just about as good as you could play on an instrument. You know, he could he could play on piano. He could he might be able to play it on bass. You know, like it's it's not so that so that for him the instrument isn't limited. Mm-hmm. It's not a limited instrument. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, right. he hears he hears it all through the drums. I saw him on piano, just him on a piano in Woodstock at the um, photography studio there a couple of years ago, and it was mesmerizing just to see him. Really, really, really beautiful. Yeah, we're lucky here in the Hudson Valley, man. We've got some great, great people. You could pick your band right from this area, and you'd be doing all right. Yeah, but it's hard to get anybody to do anything. You think? Oh, yeah. Why? Yeah, you know. Why? I don't know. You know, there's no real money to be made well, right here. Yes, that's true. That's that's really the problem. Right. You know, if you talk about the Albany, the egg or something like that, or, you know, you can you can say that. But none of those places are like, well, we'll have something every Friday or something like that. You know, it's like once every two point five years you can you can do those gigs. You know, I would like it if there was some place in in the area that people felt okay about just playing and not really thinking about their careers. You know, someplace that, I mean, the knitting factory was, was like that for a while that like everybody played anything they wanted to. And you didn't really have to think about, you know, if if you're going to play there, you don't have to think. Oh, well, should I be playing with him, or should I be playing here? Or should... I think the Falcon, where you're going to be next week, is kind of a place. The Falcon like that. is close, but it's you know, I'm saying for the amount of talent that we have living right. here, right? It's not like we sit around a campfire at Christmas and sit around and play giant steps together. It's you know, no. it's, it's not really like that, right? But. You know, there have been times in in my life different. I think Boston was a little more like that. There were a lot of talented people, and we just let's play, let's play. You know, we we can make money other places, but here where we live, we're gonna play. Let's play, right? Why not? You know, we don't have to have everybody up here, but you know, right? Let's play, right? Yeah. Who are you playing with next week at the Falcon? Um, 
with Arwan Ortiz, uh, Bruce Cox, and um, Brad Jones. Mm-hmm. Cool. So you're a quartet that's going to be playing. Now, you guys, like, do I dare say the word rehearse or get together beforehand? Or you kind of just, have you all played together? Well, I mean, we played a gig out, you know, we play gigs. Yeah. Right. Right. We, have, we have gigs before that. We have gigs. one, two days after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> we, we, you know, it's a, it's. I wouldn't say it's a working group, like we're working every week, but we work. You're working. You're working. Um, live at thefalcon.com, Don Byram, next Thursday, which I do believe is um, the 11th. No, is it the Let me get the date right. Yeah. It's the 11th. It is the 11th, 7-11. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Live at the Falcon. You do not need to purchase tickets to go. You just should make a reservation and um, and grab yourself a nice table. Some food's good. good. Food's good. Libations good. The vibe is awesome. Great, um, beautiful uh, waterfalls and just a really cool vibe at the Falcon if you haven't been yet. And um, and going to see something as extraordinary as Don Byron, who does while he may live here, does not play here all that often. It's not like something you can go see every week or every month even so i think the last time i saw you was up at colony in woodstock you were playing with this amazing band i don't even know who put it all together whether it was probably scott petito um and you guys there were bruce katz was on stage you were on stage i forgot who the drummer was scott of course the bassist that night and wow, whatever you guys all came up with, it was beautiful. Uh, one of the thrills I love seeing live music at least once a week, it's my form of therapy, is seeing people that haven't played together before or played together all that often and just have it come together. And when it just is, feels like you've played a hundred times before and you haven't, that that's my euphoria as, as a listener, as an audience member as someone that appreciates music and um yeah so the falcon you've played there mm-hmm. yeah I have. yeah cool well, i'm glad they got you back there don mm. yeah yeah you're gonna have a nice nibble there nice little food nice little drink nice little um stage a wonderful sound system there as well mm-hmm. right yeah mm-hmm. they take good care of you there tony is uh is a most grace gracious host of musicians and artists that's for sure and, um, yeah, Thursday, July 11th, live at the Falcon with Don Byron's Quartet. What, what are you going to be playing? Any idea? Like genre, a little bit of everything? What do you, what's that group do together? We play a, a lot of music that I wrote and some music that I didn't write. Yeah. You know. Uh-huh. You're keeping us in suspense. So, therefore... Just come on out. Go check it out next Thursday at the Falcon. So cool. So cool. Um, one of one of my favorite venues. There's a couple of great ones here in the Hudson Valley, and and that does not uh, never disappoints. And the, the nice thing is, too, even if you don't know the music, just go out. Support live music. Support musicians. Support artists. Um, we need it more now than ever. That's for sure. Let's take a listen to another track, sir. Please let us know what we're listening to here. I think it's called I'm Stuck. I'm Stuck. And I'm hoping that I have the track right here. Let's take a listen. It's 456, tuned into Local Motion. I'm your host, Rita Ryan, 91.3 WVKR. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. Stuck, stuck, stuck. I'm stuck. Stuck. 
Stuck Ed. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. Meaning, peek through the curtains at the nudies next door. Full court prestes, ain't no B-list, ain't no true you, ain't no real crew. Talk that doo-doo, floss this noodoo. Help, I'm stuck and I can't get up.
91.3 WVKR Independent Radio, Poughkeepsie, New York. That was pretty cool, Don. Tell us what the name was. That was called I'm Stuck. I'm Stuck. Okay. And that came off of? New Black Exploitation. What a name. Wow. Pretty cool. 14 tracks. Came out in 1998. Capitol Records. Don Byron. He's got some pretty cool... uh, um, covers, CDs. I mean, there's definitely some thought put into all of these things that, uh, not surprising that you have come up with. Um, what are you listening to nowadays? Like when you're in the car, what do you listen to? Pichinguinha. Tell me about that. This is one of the national composers of Brazil. Really the first great composer of Brazil. Certainly one of my favorite black composers. Tell me the na- name uh, again. Pichinguinha. Um, he was a flutist and saxophonist, but he was really an amazing kind of composer that really worked in early samba, choro music. You know, he's really associated with those kinds of idioms. But, um, you know, it's if if you don't know a lot about Brazil, it's hard to figure why there were such these amazing composers like like Jobim and Luis Bonfa, but it really goes back to this particular man and his way of approaching composition. He was almost like a a Richard Strauss Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, if you talk to Jobim, you know, he knows Debussy, he knows Stravinsky. So if if you go 30, 40 years back and you'd say, well, what would a modern composer... No, and what what Pichinguinha, where he's coming from, is this kind of quicksilver, very nimble, harmonic voice, something that you'd hear from somebody like Richard Strauss, but then something so deeply Brazilian, and, um, you know, he was one of those guys that was too black for somebody and too white for somebody else, you know, like it was always debate around how he was playing it because there was a side of him that was deeply almost like he knew he knew European music inside out. He really knew the forms and he knew how to connect any distant chord to another in a way that made you know that that was the right chord even though it was unusual that's um something that i think he gave to brazilian music brazilian music could have been much simpler when did he live well he i think he lived up until the 60s but you know i mean you know he people really don't know about the brazilians that they were in paris playing their stuff before the jazz guys got there you know so that like you know, Claude Debussy and those cats, you know, when, when they, when Sidney Bechet went, when they went to check him out, like 10 years before that, they would check in Pichinguinha out and his group, Os Oito Batutas, which was the first Brazilian group that they brought to Europe and people got to see what was happening in Brazil. So, um, you know, these, these recordings are ancient, but they have stuff in them that it took jazz a long time to come to harmonically even. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I think is interesting about him 
and he has a almost a a jazz a harmonic jazz mentality to him but not coming from jazz at all coming from brazilian music itself you know people like to think that you know when joe beam and those guys that, that it was all jazz 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 and that's true but there was a tradition that was already there that had nothing to do with jazz that had come to a lot of Coltrane-esque kind of conclusions, but in the 20s. And this was the guy. He's one of the great heroes of Western music. Mm, wow, beautiful. Thanks for turning me on to him. I'm going to have to check that out. That's really cool. Um, what else are you listening to? Robert Schumann, Carnival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a super bad. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. That's tricky. <laughs> That's way tricky, Robert Schumann. Robert Schumann, you know, I've recorded some. I'm, you know, I had to record some Schumann. My first record. I I love his whole command of harmony. is very unique. Too bad there weren't films around. He'd score the hell out of a film if he <laughs> if he had a chance. But he he knew he had harmony whipped so that he could use it dramatically. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you really learn from the leader composers from Schubert and Schumann, that they knew Schubert didn't even have that much harmonic knowledge as Schumann, but he knew where to put things, mm-hmm. you know. And when you're putting together a song and you have a sense of drama, but with classical level, it, you're almost thinking Tin Pan Alley, but you got all this this other harmonic material that Schumann is a bad cat Mm -hmm. he's a bad cat Robert Schumann Robert Schumann is a bad cat he's a bad cat any country that you haven't played in yet that you'd like to Uh, you know I never really got I I don't even want to I see see, like I've been to like Soviet places but I've never really been to Russia, 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 like Moscow, Moscow, Moscow. Mm-hmm. I've been to a lot of places in, in, in Eastern Europe. I spent a lot of time in places like Slovenia and Poland. Um, and, and I went to Georgia with Jack. You did? We went to Georgia. I mean, that's a long flight. Oigavalt, that's a long flight. Wow. Long flight. Like right. like flying to Australia long, wow. like laborious long. Wow. And um, that was real different, but I've never been to like Moscow and I'm just you know mm-hmm. from reading books to watching the Americans I love I want to check it out I want to see what <laughs> I love the Americans you ever see that show no I oh, haven't that's, that's is bad. it a good one yeah oh, it's yeah badass. yeah so you got to get a gig booked over in Moscow I don't know you know I I just want I For just curiosity see, I just want to see what it what it was yeah. what, it, what it was but I won't you can't see what it was because it's not the same right you know it's like these oligarchs and right yeah you know, it's not it's not what it was when people spied on you when you went places mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. where you know people I know to go go to Russia they have to have a bodyguard they would talk about you have to have a bodyguard right it's like I want to see that right I want to I want to see it right. but it's not what it was it's not what it was yeah yeah no absolutely um you've been through Asia I guess too yeah eh, no yeah, no I've turned down some trips to Asia because I'm very allergic to like soy and stuff uh-huh. like that yeah a lot of the stuff in the food so yeah last couple of times 
people had something in China, it's like, yeah, I don't think so. Because, yeah. you know, um, when I was in, and uh, as an undergrad, I developed all these food allergies, and that was really? the big one. Really? Really? Soy. Like, and I was eating, like, soy to be healthy and nice to myself. Like, I'll just have some tofu stew. I was, like, deeply oh my gosh. allergic to it. Wow. You know? So wow. I, I so subsequently I haven't Touched explored it. Asia as much. The last time, I, well, I went to Japan a couple of times. That wasn't so bad. Yeah, it's almost like New Jersey, Japan. <laughs> God, is <laughs> really? It's, it's like it's like New Jersey, but like more. You know, like a New Jersey mall, but turned way up. Really? You know, uh-huh, uh-huh. like these kids like wearing all these electronic doodads and. Dressed up like clowns. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. it's it's like you, you know that that mall on on Route Seventeen. <laughs> yes, the Palisades or Park. Yeah, it's like that, but more. Yeah, more intense it's than that. It's more. Now you were just in Europe in Rome. Is that correct? Yeah, I was yeah. In Rome, not that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's nice. Europe's a nice place to be. Yeah. You spent some time in Rome, I understand. Well, I won this thing, the Rome Prize. Uh-huh. Um, I'm proud to say I'm the only one of George Russell's students that won the Rome Prize. That's pretty um, damn good. It is pretty damn yeah, good. Yeah, it is. But, um, you know, it It was a year. It's one thing to want to be in a place, and it's another thing to want to write music there. Right. So, so mm-hmm. I like being there. I didn't love writing music there, but I like being there. Mm-hmm. And, and I did some cool stuff. Went, went with some friends to Sicily and mm. checked that out. Mm. Man. Must I mean, like, on a, on an Alan Lomax vibe, you know, like, <laughs> looking for new, old, you know, archival kind of, you know, something that the fishmonger would sing. Uh-huh. Like, we were doing that. Right, right. Cool. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, nice. Um Besides playing at the Falcon, what else do you got going on? Uh, we're playing somewhere in Queens a few days afterwards. Okay. Uh, it's a festival um, paying tribute to Milford Graves, a great percussion player. I think that's July 13th. July 13th. Yeah. Jamaica John, Center for Jamaica the Arts. Center. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's, and then, uh, yeah, I don't know. You doing some more scores? Well, if I get one. Yeah. They're hard to come by. Yeah. A lot of competition. Well, there's people just doing that. Uh-huh. They're just doing that. Right. You know, like I even went out to Sunday. I did a Sundance film composers mm-hmm. workshop one year. You know, like that That was a hard fellowship to get into, but I got into it. But it, there's, you know, there's people living and dying for that. Yeah. And uh, that's not exactly where I'm coming from. Do you go see live music? Yeah. Uh-huh. Why not? Yeah, I don't know. I'm asking. I'm usually in a lot of live music that I see. Right. But, but, know, and, but it brings me to hear other people. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's like, yeah, we're just like, hey, I'm going here and there tonight, and I'm going to check these guys out. Stravinsky. <laughs> beautiful. Awesome. That is beautiful. 
So we are live on air here. It is 5.13 and you are tuned into Local Motion here with Don Byron. And we are going to, we're going to say that he's going to be performing next Thursday, July 11th at the Falcon. A really rare treat, even though he lives in the area, he does not play around here. So um, check out the Don Byron Quartet next Thursday, the 11th at the Falcon. No tickets are needed. Just make yourself a reservation. it's, It's kind of like a contribution donation as you, as you feel donation it's a beautiful feel. thing that means bring your 50s yeah bring, bring your, your 50s, 50s with. as tony falco will tell you as he introduces you is places for people that can afford and can't afford it's open for everybody to be able to see live music if you are times are good he'll say throw in 50 throw in 100 if times are tough throw in whatever it is you can and that's the beautiful thing about the falcon and everybody does the right thing so if you can you do and that's what the falcon's all about a really beautiful place live at the falcon.com it is close by it's always an early show if it's a work night for people it's an early show you'll you'll be home just in time to watch the evening news i guarantee you and uh, not that you need to or want to do that but if you do uh, you'll be home for that live at the falcon.com mr don byron what else what else can we what else would you like to share with the listeners here well i'm working on some an orchestral project uh, rescoring title sequences by saul bass that's my new project wow where are you doing that um well working on some pr- different presenters uh-huh Really cool. Out, in and out of town. Uh-huh. Uh. I'd probably do it at the Poisson Rouge, I think. Uh-huh. But, um... Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm What's your favorite interested. venue in the world? Or give me one or two, like, places that you just love playing and you've been there and just been like, this is it. The old Bim House in, in Amsterdam. Really? The old Bim House. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um... And I'm guessing we're talking Amsterdam, Holland, not Amsterdam, yeah, no, New not, York. Not, not Amsterdam, right. you know, Cleveland, right. Amsterdam. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would say Florence, Italy. Mm. Okay. I used to have some friends that were presenters in Florence, Italy, and I always had a great time there. Nice. Um, I've had a lot of great times at the Berlin Jazz Festival. Mm-hmm. Different things. I mean, that was the first place I went in Europe with Hamia Blewett. Really? Um, Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had, I've had lots of friends in Berlin over the years. It's a place I feel c- kind of close to. Oh, nice. Berlin. Although I don't, I don't like it so much now that the wall is down. I liked it better when the wall was was up. You're the first person I've ever heard say that. It was more fun because, you know, the thing about Berlin, it, it was because you were kind of cut off from people. They made it very easy to live there tax-wise in a lot of different ways. So a lot of people were in west in the west part of Berlin you know, almost like it was like the East Village, kind of. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. It had a, it, it had a more of a hippie vibe, and now it's like really the capital, and it's money. Mm-hmm. It looks more like Frankfurt now. Mm-hmm. Frankfurt was always a nasty, very kinda. industrialized. I'm you from know, Germany, a banking town yes. too. Whereas, yes. uh, yeah, Berlin had, had more of a kind of a 
you know, there was all these Rasta guys living in Berlin, just like crazy, like all kinds of people living there. And it it was fun. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not really, you know, it's a nice city and, you know, it is what it is, Bauhaus, Bauhaus, but it's not, it's not fun like it was. Huh, interesting. You know, the first time I went to Berlin, I met this girl, still, we're still good friends, and she took me to the, like a place where, there, like a place where like there was a, on the other side of this, this little body of water was East Germany. Mm-hmm. And while she, while we were standing there, like a gunboat came by with, you know, machine Jeez. guns on a turret. You know, that's, so if you're living in that, it's a different vibe than now. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. there was something kind of like, well, you know, World War Three could happen, but at least we're going to go down partying, <laughs> right. you know. Right, because it and was now, insulated. there ain't going to be any World War Three, or it's not going to be there. Right. Um, it, 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 had, it just had a different character at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the clubs there, um, the Quasimodo and uh, the A-Train, um, they were all... In, in the free part of the town. And then, now that it, it's opened up, you don't hear so much about Berlin in the same, more experimental kind of way. Right, right. It seems to be heavy techno involved. Um, yeah, well, yeah. it would be. Yeah, yeah. It would be. Yeah. It, it, you know, that Berlin was the first place that I went. Huh. It was just so interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. I always, yeah, I spent several birthdays somehow. I'd always have a gig in Berlin on my birthday. Because like you happen to times. plan that perfect. I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's cool because you liked it. That's why. I don't know. It's a pretty cool place to be. Yeah, cool. Um, I thank you for your time here today. I always think the biggest gift we can give one another is time. So thank you for sharing yours and your music. And there's, I can't put it all into one word. I just, will say that it's unique it's eclectic it i love the fact that it's all over the place um in a really obviously you know great way but that you one album's going to sound different than the next album with you and that's just it seems like that's what you're doing um i look forward to catching you next week live um because i love recordings but i love seeing live music because there's nothing like it to feel the energy coming from the band and how everybody interacts with each other and how you all make the audiences feel after seeing some great music so um your gift has has gone on and on and will continue to go on and on you You've certainly made um, quite an impression. You've had many students that you've taught, and you've probably um, influenced many, many students. So um, we're we're lucky to have Don Byron in this world. So thank you. Thank you for being in here with me. And um, next Thursday is where folks should go check him out, right at the Falcon. It's a beautiful place and great music. I mean, this is something so rare to go see here in the Hudson Valley. Um, Thursday, July 11th. It's a week from tomorrow. Live at thefalcon.com. No reservation. Make a reservations. No tickets needed. It's by donor.